This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Aaron Bastani is away, but we are with, well, we have a very safe pair of hands. Helena, aka No Justice MTG, also here on YouTube. Welcome back to the show, Helena. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me, as always. We have some big stories tonight, as ever, coming up later. Labour has stormed to victory in two by-elections. Um, very impressive results. But for many, the win will be marred by Starmer's support for Israeli war crimes. We discuss the latest on the backlash. Plus, a US State Department official has spoken out on America's blind support for Israel after resigning his position. An incredibly interesting interview. Let's get straight on to our first story. Gaza has been subject to a 16-year Israeli blockade, which has long made the lives of its 2.2 million citizens virtually unlivable. But immediately after the Hamas attacks of October the 7th, the Israelis pledged to make a bad situation much, much worse. They also made their intent clear. Israel's defense minister warned that, quote, we are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. Israel's energy minister declared that, quote, no electrical switch will be turned on, no water hydrant will be opened, and no fuel truck will enter until Hamas frees hostages. Now, that's a clear pledge to impose collective punishment, which is a war crime. And there's some real genocidal language there as well. And the consequences of the siege have been devastating. By this Sunday, Associated Press had reported that clean water had run out at the majority of UN shelters, where hundreds of thousands of Gazans are sheltering from Israeli air raids. They reported this. Across Gaza, families rationed dwindling water supplies, with many forced to drink dirty or brackish water. Many resorted to going to dirty wells at sea, increasing the risk of dehydration, waterborne diseases, and more deaths. The siege is also causing major problems for hospitals. With electricity cut off, they are relying on generators. And because of the blockade, those generators are running out of fuel. As I said, this is a war crime. And when Joe Biden visited Israel this week, he stated that one of his priorities was providing some relief from the siege. And he arranged with the Egyptian president for 20 trucks to go via the Rafah crossing, where Gaza borders Egypt. I wanted to make sure there was a vehicle mechanism that this could happen quickly. And so I've been on the phone for the last, I don't know, we've been on the ground a while. That's why we haven't taken off. With with LCC, I I don't think I was on that long. It was about probably half an hour. And uh, both uh, my team here was with me. uh, And uh, he agreed that what he would do is open the gate on to do two things. One, led up to 20 trucks through to begin with. Uh, Satterfield, my ambassador, is down there in, uh, in, not down there, in Cairo now. He's going to coordinate this. He has my authority to do what is needed to get it done. They're going to patch the roads. They have to fill in potholes to get these trucks through. Um, And that's going to occur. They expect it will take about eight hours tomorrow. So there may be nothing rolling through until, what's, what's today? What's the track of days? Thursday? Wednesday. Wednesday? Probably until Friday. 
Now, potholes is quite the euphemism for craters caused by Israeli airstrikes, of course, on the one route in and out of Gaza right now. In any case, the big problem with this 20 trucks pledge is that a territory with 2.2 million people needs a lot more than 20 trucks. Chief Executive of Action Aid, Halima Begum, spoke to Newsnight last night. Most people in Gaza are already living under quite a difficult circumstances. There's been a blockade there for years and years and years. And 80% of the population of Gaza is already living in quite refugee conditions. And typically, 100 aid trucks would pass through into Gaza on a normal day. That's every day. So now we've got 20 trucks waiting to cross the Egyptian border. It's a drop in the ocean. But can you give us a sense of what might actually happen at the crossing? I mean, I think you're quite pessimistic about what might happen at the crossing as this aid comes in. So what we have heard is Egyptians have started moving bulldozers across the, the border in order to um, kind of clear out the bomb sites and, mm -hmm. and, and the potholes. So that suggests that there's a glimmer of hope for us that tomorrow morning, 20 aid trucks will go through but I am very worried because what is 20 aid trucks? We've got 1.2 million people all going to access 20 aid trucks. If you do the maths there, that's about half a pound of aid supplies per person in Gaza. But it's a test, isn't it? As we were just saying earlier, it's a test to make sure that none of this aid falls into the hands of Hamas. We shouldn't really be applying tests with, with the lives of people who are desperate for aid. There's 1.2 desperate people wanting aid, so we wouldn't really want to test this scenario, what we should be looking at is making sure that that humanitarian corridor is safe in the best possible way. Now, I was slightly confused where Begum's 1.2 million figure was, was coming from. Of course, there are 2.2 million people in Gaza. Now, apparently, though, that's the number of Gazans who were reliant on UN aid before October the 7th. So I can only assume um, the number has gone up now. Of course, sometimes people from charities have to be you know, especially careful that they're not overstating things. But I imagine there are a lot more than 1.2 million people currently dependent on aid. Um, the urgency of the situation has meant that today the UN Secretary General gave this address outside the Rafa crossing. This must be a sustained effort. We are not looking for a one convoy to come. We are looking for convoys to be authorized in a meaningful numbers of trucks to go every day into Gaza to provide enough support to the Gaza people. Of course, a lack of supplies is only one of the deadly challenges facing Gazans right now. And even those who fled the north of Gaza on the instructions of the Israelis are being killed by Israeli airstrikes. This report is from Deutsche Welle. A father carrying his child to the grave. His was one of three children among those receiving their final rites on this barren patch of land. Prayers are held to the sound of Israeli aircraft hovering above, a constant menace to the Palestinians below, and a reminder of the airstrike on the town of Khan Yunis that killed the civilians being buried here. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled the northern part of the Gaza Strip after Israel told them to leave for the south. Running out of food and desperate for shelter, they have found no reprieve from Israel's relentless bombing campaign. We came from Gaza City. 
They told us to come to the south, so we came to the south. We found that the strikes intensified in the south. We stayed in a house. In front of us there were strikes, behind us strikes. There's no safety. There's nowhere safe in Gaza. You have to be ready to die and to just stay in your house. You have to be ready to die and just stay in your house. I mean, you know, we've been talking all week about how despicable it was for the Israelis to say they're evacuating or they're, they're telling 1.2 million people or 1.1 million people to leave their homes in the, in the north of Gaza. Of course, that's not an evacuation. That's, a, that, that's mass displacement, right? That, that, that's a mass displacement uh, at the barrel of a gun. Right. That was already horrific enough because it's impossible to do. It's a you know mass displacement is already a war crime. But then the people who do move, so the people who do up sticks and go to the south, leave all of their possessions, um, they go to the south of Gaza. They're, all, they're living under siege, of course, because that's the whole of the Gaza Strip is living under siege. And then they get bombed anyway. Right. So you've left your home. You've made that terrible decision to leave your home. You, you by the way, don't know if you're ever going to be allowed back. You go to the south of Gaza and then you get bombed again. And this isn't just one or two bombs. Right. You heard from that guy who's saying they're in their house, there are bombs in front of them, bombs behind them, bombs both side of them. It's just, and, and then you saw at the beginning of that clip, those babies getting buried. It's just, it's so despicable and so appalling. And you have to remember that, you know, until the last couple of days, when thankfully there was some pushback, all you heard from both sides of the aisle in terms of UK politics was, Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel has the right to defend itself. This has all been framed in terms of Israel defending itself, which is completely ridiculous when what you're doing is, is, is telling babies to leave their homes and then bombing them when they move, right? For a view on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, I spoke earlier to Dr. Omar Abdel-Manan, a pediatric neurology doctor who has visited Gaza and the West Bank multiple times as part of medical delegations. I started by asking what his experience working in Gazan hospitals can tell us about the situation they face now. So my experience of being there, and I've been there on numerous occasions, um, has always been that they, it's a healthcare system that's in crisis consistently. And that has been the case since the blockade and the siege since 2005, 2006 by the Israeli government. Um, they are always short of supplies. They are always uh, very much relying on um, uh, minimal resources and limited resources. So it's a healthcare system that's essentially in crisis mode most of the time is on its knees and I think the current um, escalation, the current attacks, uh, especially on Al-Hilal Hospital and uh, some of the things we've seen in the last few days have really pushed them to uh, an extremely dire situation where it's a mass casualty situation that they've never dealt with uh, before to this, to this extent. So I understand you're, you're talking to colleagues and friends who are currently working um, as medics in, in Gaza. What are they telling you? What are they telling you is sort of the, the key challenges they're currently facing? I mean, I'm sure there are there are many, but if you could sort of give us some, some insight into what they're currently telling you. Sure. So there's probably three key challenges that I, that, uh, kind of themes that come out from the conversations we've had. The first one is just the number of casualties, the number of patients that are coming through the door uh, and a disproportionate amount of children and women uh, who are caught in the crossfire of um, the bombings and the attacks. So oftentimes they're now dealing with uh, extreme, uh, extremely difficult uh, situations where they have to triage patients, they have to leave some patients to die because the injuries they have suffered are probably unsustainable for life uh, or they would be in a situation where they had more less numbers. Um, so they have to 
decide who lives and who dies essentially at, at the emergency uh, door, which is a very difficult situation for any doctor being a medic myself. I can't imagine I'm you know, distraught to think that they would have to make these decisions. Secondly, uh, I think the hospitals are struggling from a fuel and electricity point of view. So that means that when the electricity cuts, which is, I think, happening consistently, and we spoke to colleagues from Al-Shifa Hospital who told us, one of the main hospitals in Gaza, who told us that um, they have very little electricity now. It means the ventilators are not working in the intensive care units. So patients essentially would need to be manually ventilated to keep them alive. Um, secondly, children who would normally receive chemotherapy or infusions or drugs, they're not getting hold of that. And also women who would be delivering in hospital are having to do so in unsafe conditions. So, And the lack of sanitation, the lack of water uh, increases the risk of infectious diseases. So there's multiple issues they're dealing with. But uh, And I've, I've had a report this morning. I, the only doctor we've managed to get in contact with in Gaza was an intensive care a doctor in one of the children's hospitals there, um, she's actually the lead for the ICU, and she told us that um, the situation is horrendous. They have had five children that have died, incubator uh, neonatal babies, uh, as a result of ventilators failing. So, you know, these are situations that uh, no doctor should, should really have to face. Well, for hospitals in the north of Gaza, they've been subject to an evacuation order from, from the Israelis. Of course, um, buildings in the south are still getting anyway. But how are doctors and medics responding to that evacuation order? Are, are, are there hospitals trying to transfer their patients to the south of the country? Or is, is the idea that that's just simply impossible? So all the doctors I've spoken to and I've heard from have said that they will not leave the hospitals, uh, especially because they have patients who are impossible to transfer in, in these scenarios. They, they have a large number of patients. They have patients in intensive care, they have patients on dialysis, they have um, patients that are just not as mobile um, and easy to transport. So, so many of the doctors have decided to stay behind, but we know that there's been a million uh, Gazans who have been displaced, uh, and that's adding a lot of pressure to the hospitals in the South. So actually, the same doctor I mentioned working in intensive care told us how the numbers have just doubled and trebled in terms of who's walking through the door. And many of them are walking injured coming from the north of Gaza who have made the treacherous journeys south uh, and then uh, finally made it into one of the emergency departments. So they're really struggling. It's a, There's a massive capacity issue. There's a lack of humanitarian aid going in. There's no, the borders are closed. Um, you know, there is a real need for, first of all, a ceasefire to prevent further escalation, further deaths, but also to allow aid in and to allow supplies to be brought to these hospitals. I spoke to one of the um, team from the Norwegian doctors who are uh, a convoy that go in regularly when there's escalation in Gaza. And they told me that um, currently all the private supplies within the stocks or the private stockpiles that are within Gaza have been exhausted. So this is you know, key medications, antibiotics, chemotherapy, um, fluids, things that you would need to operate any basic healthcare facility, let alone a secondary or tertiary level hospital with you know um, complex cases. So they're really under pressure at the moment and struggling with that. A key demand, I mean, from lots of quarters at the moment is for a ceasefire. Um, Western governments and most Western party leaders are, 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 are refusing outright to call for a ceasefire. In fact, they're saying they would oppose a ceasefire. I mean, what do you think about that? What do you think are the implications of, of the refusal of Western governments to say, we demand a ceasefire now? 
look, I'm not a politician. Uh, I come from a humanitarian and medical aspect, but I think it's within my remit and within our remit as a healthcare uh, professional body, medics, surgeons, nurses, paramedics, we are calling for an end to violence because if this continues, you know, the, 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 the number of deaths are just going to escalate and, and there will be longer term consequences with, you know, not only the short term sort of fatalities and injuries, horrific injuries that I'm seeing. And I have, unfortunately, photos on my phone being sent from colleagues of indescribable um, injuries that I see. But on top of that, there'll be breakouts of infectious diseases, cholera, there's the sort of things you see in a real humanitarian crisis where there's been an earthquake or there's been um, infrastructure that's just been completely um, annihilated, which is what's happening there. So I would urge that all world leaders, the Israeli government, the Egyptian government, the Western leaders especially, to sit down at the table and push for a ceasefire. And that needs to happen first. But on top of that, there needs to be humanitarian aid convoys going in. 20 trucks being promised in the next 24 hours is simply not good enough. Um, in my opinion, that's a drop in the ocean to what the people of Gaza need and require. Um, and this delay is just prolonging human suffering. And it's resulting in mass casualties of innocent civilians, children, women, uh, people who are caught in the crossfire between essentially two warring governments. That was Dr. Omar Abdelmanan speaking to me earlier today. We've got a comment from Coffee Lover. Israel's government is a master at gaslighting. Um, so sort of saying, we're not, we're, we're looking out for your self-interest when actually, or we're defending ourselves when actually what you're doing is, is bombing a lot of kids. Um, seems a somewhat reasonable comment to me. Um, we have had an update. Uh, this, happened, this was released by Sky just before we went live, in fact. So they report that two US hostages held by Hamas have been released for humanitarian reasons. That's what Hamas have said. Um, the organization's armed wing spokesman, Abu Ubaida, has said. Um, and he said it was in response to Qatari mediation efforts and to, quote, prove to the American people and the world that the claims made by Biden and his fascist administration are false and baseless. Um, so obviously the hostages... Um, I think there are around 200 hostages. Um, Israel is saying t around 20 of them are kids. Um, the the circumstances under which they are, you know, released or otherwise will have a big impact when it comes to the diplomacy surrounding this war. Um, obviously, it will be very interesting if we hear from these two hostages anytime soon in terms of what conditions um, they were kept in. And let's go straight on to our next story. Labour has achieved two stunning by-election victories. One was in the safe Tory seat of mid-Bedfordshire after it was vacated by Nadine Doris. In 2019, the Tories achieved a majority of almost 25,000 in the seat, but this was the result yesterday. Labour increased their vote share by 12 points to 34%. The Tories' vote collapsed from 60% to 31%, so very, very dramatic. Um, the other by-election was in Chris Pincher's old seat. He resigned after being censured by a Commons Committee for Sexual Harassment. In 2019, the Tories had a 20,000 majority in Tamworth, and this was the result yesterday. Labour ended up on 46%, up 22 points, and the Tories were on 41%, down 26 points. So an extraordinary swing to Labour there. And of course, it doesn't take a genius to see these are great results for Labour and terrible ones for the Tories. And this was the analysis from elections guru, John Curtis. Um, he says, both of them are extremely bad news for the Conservatives in whatever criteria you use. They're up there very clearly in the top 10 worst Conservative performance against 
the Labour Party. He thinks um, Labour is in line for a majority. And speaking in mid-Bedfordshire, Keir Starmer was jubilant. Look, these are two very, very important victories for us. Um, each of those results is extraordinary. Um, it's history in the making. Um, and I think that reflects the fact that we are a changed Labour Party, that we are putting a positive case for change to the country. And after 13 years of failure and decline under this Conservative government, I think people are looking for change. But we take it humbly. We know that we have to earn every vote. People have put their trust and confidence in them, and we thank them for that. But we've still got to go on from here, earning the vote across the country. But this is a very, very good result for us. Mid-Bedfordshire, somewhere you've never won. You've never won this seat before. You've just overturned the biggest majority of by-election ever. Are there any safe seats left in the country now? No, I think that this really is a game-changer. I mean, there is um, a confidence now in this changed Labour Party that we can go anywhere across the country, uh, put up a fight and win seats that, as you say, we've never won before. Um, Helena, I want your thoughts on this. I mean, we've talked about Keir Starmer a lot over the past couple of weeks, principally in relation to his comments on, on Israel and Palestine generally despicable. Um, we're going to part that for now because we've got a section coming up on that issue. Um, so sort of separate from his comments over the past couple of weeks, what do you make of these results? They are fairly impressive in terms of uh, Labour wanting to win the next general election. I mean, we have to caveat everything we say here by thinking this is a by-election. By-election demographics of who votes and who doesn't are different to general elections, but they are still very, very significant results, even on the very low turn, I think 36% turnout that we had in Tamworth, which is way much lower than what you get at a general election. I think there's two things we need to talk about here. The low turnout is, first of all, showing that the Conservative Party have lost people, right? Their vote has gone down, but also the amount of people that they can get to turn out to the polls in the first place has gone down. A lot of Conservative voters, well, where some of them have decided to move over to Labour, when you look at the actual polling, the continual polling that comes out of places like YouGov, they have actually changed their position. But a huge amount of them are just going to drop out of the electoral calculus. A lot of these people are just not going to turn up to the next election because they would never vote for Labour, but they cannot support the Conservative Party in its current form. So much for Rishi Sunak changing the face of the Conservatives, when he's essentially just delivering the same stuff that we've had for the last however many years, with even worse communications, potentially even looking at what they had during the conference. Now, I will need, there is this discussion we need to have around tactical voting and how that's going to change both these elections currently and the next general election when it comes up as well. If you cast your mind back to when there was the local elections where Labour didn't do quite as well as people would have expected, given their current Westminster polling on a national level. And that led a lot of people to come out and say, well, actually, there's this potential. There's a potential that there's going to need to be a coalition between the Labour and the Liberal Democrats. The results that we've seen yesterday put that completely out of, the, out of reach as far as I'm concerned. I don't think that it's going to be a hung parliament if things continue as they have done. I think we're much closer to getting a Labour majority, if anything. And tactical voting is one of the things that we do need to talk about here, which doesn't really happen in those council elections like we saw. But it does happen when it comes to actual Westminster elections, which is what by-elections and general elections are. And this will potentially lead to, if the Labour Party continue being 20 or more points ahead in the polls, which they've been consistently, in fact, the lead over the Conservatives that they've had since Rishi Sunak came into power, that's increased. Right, The, the gap has been widening even further. And as much as we'd like there to be some kind of um, some kind of controls over what Keir Starmer can or can't do as Prime Minister, that's the chances of that are waning considerably, given the results 
that we've seen. And tactical voting is going to have a really big part to play, not just in these Labour seats, but in the Southwest and other by-elections that we've seen as well. People are much more likely to, to vote for who they think can win rather than who they actually want to vote for when it comes to the election. Obviously, Mid-Bedfordshire was a pretty, an anomalous result in that as far as tactical voting is concerned, because there was a chance that both Lib Dems and Labour could win and there was no kind of unspoken agreement as to where those votes would go. But you look at seats in the Southwest, you look at these other seats outside of um, you know, Uxbridge, which was a kind of an anomalous seat as well, given the kind of demographics that are there. This is very, very scary if you're a conservative strategist for the next election, because if these trends continue, this looks like that we'll end up in a position where they'll probably do even worse than they did in 1997. And to kind of make a statistical point about that, look how many votes Paddy Ashdown got in 97. He got way more percentage or a larger percentage of the votes in what the lib democrats in what the liberal democrats are currently polling at in national westminster polling averages and it looks like given the kind of seats that the lib dems are winning in these by elections they're going to win even more seats in places like the southwest labor are going to be taking places in the midlands and in the north bringing back all of the red wall seats as well and this ability for people to deliberately vote tactically will mean that they'll probably the lib dems will be 6 points behind where they were in 97 and win even more seats than they did then and so given that the blue wall is going to crumble, the red wall is going to crumble, and seats completely out of the range of what would be gettable in a normal electoral year, I think that we're going to see some pretty worry-looking conservative faces in the months to come. And we got a uh, super chat from someone who has voted, or did vote, in the mid-Bedfordshire by-election. So Ryan M. Um, voted for the very first time yesterday for the Greens in mid-Beds, being a young left-winger in an old homeowning constituency I do not matter. Um, yeah, so that's not a constituency where I suppose Labour will be too worried about the Greens. Although, given it's now a swing seat, um, I suppose they will be because, you know, they might think that if if people don't vote tactically so much this time around, then the Conservatives could get it back. I mean, when it is a safe Tory seat um, and it goes, or, you know, a safe government seat that goes to the opposition in a by-election, it does tend to go back um, to to the government at the general election because it, it it's more, um, you know, that's a more normal election. Um, but the fact that such a huge majority can be overturned suggests that Labour will win many more seats that aren't quite so safe. Let's go to our next and very much related story. Labour has just achieved two impressive by-election wins, but for many on the left, the results will leave a bitter taste. That's because of the disgraceful behaviour of Keir Starmer and the Labour frontbench since the start of the Gaza war. After the by-election victories, um, he was asked about his stance on that war. You gave an interview the other day in which you implied that it would be justified for Israel to cut off Gaza's power and water supply. Is that what you meant? Well, I welcome this question because I know that that LBC clip has been widely shared and caused real concern and distress in some Muslim communities. So let me be clear about what I was saying and what I wasn't saying. I was saying Israel had the right to self-defence. And when I said that right, it was that right to self-defence. I was not saying that Israel had the right to cut off water, food, fuel or medicines. And yet people uh, on, came to on, that well, conclusion. On the contrary, uh, for over a week now, I have been leading the charge, calling uh, for that humanitarian aid to come in. We all know there are, you know, innocent civilians in Gaza in a humanitarian crisis, a million children. That aid urgently needs to get in. So I was saying, yes, they have the right to self-defence. That right they do have, but not the right to withhold that humanitarian 
aid that needs to get in. It is now absolutely urgent, and that's why I've been calling for this for over a week. So I'm very pleased to be able to clarify um, precisely what I was saying in that LBC clip. So Kia, there are two problems with that answer. First, it's not just Muslims that are upset about you backing war crimes, right? And this isn't just a, a community relations issue, right? It's not just, oh, I've, I've upset one community group at the expense of another community group. No, it's hundreds of thousands of people of all backgrounds who were disgusted by you giving Israel unconditional support in its criminal war on Palestine. And that's what you did, right? That is what you did. And this is the second problem. Um, because here, we saw the LBC clip. This was the interview in question. I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself. Um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power? Cutting off water? Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law. So that wasn't ambiguous, right? It wasn't that some people watched the clip and misinterpreted it, as, as Keir Starmer saying, oh, uh, oh, oh, we sort of had this bad faith interpretation. He seems to be um, implying um, that starving Gazans of water and electricity and food is, is fine and within international law. No, he specifically said it, right? That wasn't an ambiguous question. Nick Ferrari said, so what do you think about depriving Gazans of food, water and electricity? And he says, I think they have that right. I think they have that right. It was unambiguous. So he's lying. Keir Starmer is lying. We already knew he was a liar. Um, and he seems to be willing to sort of go back on things, even if he just said them uh, a couple of days earlier, or a week earlier in this case. Um, and it's not just Keir Starmer who was a liar. It's not just Keir Starmer who was sort of slipping up, let's say, because it's clear um, that what Keir Starmer said there to Nick Ferrari was the official Labour position. And we know that because Emily Formbury was asked the same question on Newsnight. Do you think cutting off food, water and electricity is within international law? I think that Israel has an absolute right to defend itself That's against terrorism. That's not the question I asked. It is an answer to the question that, that you've asked, and I think it's an appropriate one at this time. So that was the Labour line, right? She was asked, are you in favour of, do you think it's within international law for Israel to block food, water, electricity going into Gaza and Emily Formbury says, we're in the middle of a hot war. It's such a bizarre answer as well. Do you think this is a war crime? Well, we're in the middle of a hot war, so who can say? War crimes tend to be committed in the middle of hot wars, right? The, the, the laws that affect um, war <laughs> don't, aren't thrown aside when a war begins, right? That's the whole point of them. They are the laws of war. So that was the Labour line. Um, Keir Starmer's now saying it was misinterpreted and he's, he's glad to clarify what the position actually was. But anyone with eyes and ears can see that what the position was, was that Labour were in favour of starving the people of Gaza um, from both food, water and electricity. Um, so pretty depressing. Of course, though, um, the fact Starmer feels the need to do this U-turn and then to lie does suggest um, some of the pressure on him is working. Now, some examples of that pressure are a protest outside Labour's London office today. And um, Blood on your hands is how protesters describe the Labour Party outside its headquarters while chanting, Keir Starmer, you can't hide, you're endorsing genocide. 
Alia al-Ghussein, who has family in Gaza, was at the protest and told Navarra Media this, Labour has been actively egging Israel on in its genocidal intent in the Gaza Strip. We know that most Labour voters don't support that, so we want them to change their policy, come out and to demand an immediate ceasefire. It feels really difficult for Muslims and Arabs in the Labour Party because it feels like we're being told that the things that matter to us are not important because they're not politically expedient. Very well put there, I think. Um, Labour officials are also resigning their posts in protest at Labour's position on the bombardment of Gaza. In Scotland, nine members of the Executive Committee of the Glasgow Kelvin CLP quit after the party stopped a debate on Gaza from taking place. In an email seen by Navarra Media, the CLP's Secretary Peter Duffy wrote this, We have been informed by the General Secretary and the Scottish General Secretary that any motions relating to the situation in Israel and Gaza are out of order for all CLPs. It seems preposterous to us that a local political party cannot have a substantive discussion on contemporary events which are commanding the attention of the entire world. We believe that the emergency motion which was submitted for debate was perfectly valid and we refute any suggestion by party officials that the mere discussion of the Gaza situation would be prejudicial or grossly detrimental to the Labour Party. So that's what the, the message from the General Secretary suggested it could be. On the contrary, we believe that the absence of such discussion brings our party into disrepute. Meanwhile, 36 councillors have written letters unequivocally distancing themselves from Keir Starmer's remarks on Gaza, with some of them accusing him of failing to condemn Israel's collective punishment of Palestinians. Several councillors have also already resigned over the issue. One of them is Mona Ahmed, who quit the Labour ward of Notting Dale. Um, she's penned a piece for Tribune where she says... This, um, the Labour leader has rejected calls for a ceasefire or to oppose Israel's illegal evacuation order of more than one million Palestinians, even as Israel's government and armed forces make their criminal intentions clear. The Israel Defence Forces declared the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy, while the President of Israel, Isaac Herzog, denied the existence of innocent civilians in the Gaza Strip. Instead of condemning war crimes, Keir Starmer joined the chorus of voices, voices engaged in the utter dehumanisation of Palestinians signalling his apparent indifference to the suffering of civilians in Gaza, whom he regards as acceptable collateral damage in Israel's campaign to, quote-unquote, defend itself. Despite the backlash, Labour still seems to be picking unnecessary battles. Ahead of demonstrations across the country in support of Palestine this weekend, the party has issued a warning to MPs. ITV's political correspondent Shahab Khan has reported this. Labour MPs have been sent a message from the leadership urging caution about attending any upcoming Palestine-related vigils. Message from Labour chief also reaffirms the previous strong advice that MPs should not attend Palestine demonstrations under any circumstance. MPs are, however, told that they should use their own judgment about attending vigils in their constituencies, but the party's very strong advice is not uh, um, to attend any event which risks undermining the values of the party. Um, multiple Labour MPs telling me this evening they're not particularly happy with the leadership's position on this. Um, Helena, so we have had, I mean, clearly some movement um, in the position of the Labour Party. Of course, no apology because Keir Starmer prefers to just rewrite history. Um, of course, I never said that. People just misinterpreted me. He's, it, would, it would be a bit more, um, I think, honest and, and, and bold and have a bit more integrity to say, I'm sorry we got that wrong, right? But he's not going to say that, is he? Because he's, he's not a particularly honest person. Um, but the fact that the position of the Labour front bench has been pushed, 
right? They no longer sort of say, all we're going to say is Israel has a right to defend itself. They are emphasizing to a greater degree um, uh, the problem with war crimes. We're, we're really scraping the barrel here, aren't we, in terms of um, low expectations. Um, they've, they've, they've managed to, to, to overcome the bar of not backing war crimes, right? It's pretty goddamn minimal. Um, but in any case, there is some movement. I mean, what do you make of it? I mean, if you forgive me, I'm just absolutely sick of this line of Israel has the right to defend itself. This was never in question. At no point was Israel's right to defend itself as a sovereign state ever in question. This continuing re repetition of this canard is only ever used as a deliberate way to obfuscate of the, about them committing war crimes, right? Without them violating international law. Just saying they have a right to defend themselves, but also has to be within international law without specifically stating what is and is not things that they are doing that are against international law. It's it's pussyfooting around the issue as far as I'm concerned. And it's quite frankly pathetic. I quite I quite frankly, I think that if it wasn't for the backlash from MPs and from councillors, I don't think that Starmer would ever have changed his position. I don't think Sunak would have changed his position either if there hadn't been Crisp and Blunt threatening to take these people to the ICC. Uh, as the threat to get them to change their position on this. But outside of just the siege and the blockade and the removal of things like fuel and food and water, etc., they're still trying to engage in the forced transfer of citizens from the north of Gaza to the south. Has any of our high-level politicians condemned this at all? Of course they haven't, but they'll just continue to repeat right to defend itself and within international law as an aphorism that they can use to completely disregard any actual specific and qualitative claims over things that they they are or are not doing that are against international law. And it's really mealy mouth for them to try and do this to try and placate people in their own party, rather than hold a genuine moral conviction on something of a great importance as whether or not one of our political allies in the Middle East is committing war crimes as we speak. And it's absolutely disastrous as far as I'm concerned that it's allowed to get to this point in the first place. Really and truly, I think that one thing we have to take uh, into account with regards to what Starmer's been doing here is he's really, really he's a junior MP. He's only been around since 2015. He's been an MP for five years before becoming the leader of the biggest political party in Europe at the time. And it's very, very clear that I don't think he quite realises just how much weight his words carry and wouldn't have done in that conversation with Nick Ferrari. And their communication so far has been pretty poor on a lot of issues, including this. I don't think he quite realised the gravitas of his own a tacit endorsement of war crimes at the time and had to get his kind of position changed on this by pressure from outside because he didn't realise what the position that he has entails and the enormity of the position that he takes about the kind of implications there are for, uh, sorry, the kind of implications that there are for him not taking a strong moral position on any of these things. You look at, for example, the nationwide polling looking for a ceasefire, right? Not just within the Labour Party, the nationwide polling shows 78% support for a ceasefire, right? Only 1% of Labour supporters think there definitely shouldn't be a ceasefire. That's how far away from not just the, the internal Labour Party that he is on this issue, but in terms of the entire country support for this issue. There's a gigantic sea change and he is to try and essentially go triangulate the focus group style position that Labour seem to take for every single position that they take nowadays, because they don't believe in a thing, they don't have any moral positions that they take on anything, no ethical, um, there's been no kind of ethical iteration that's gone into anything that he said here. It's all about winning the election, as I mentioned last time, this issue came up on Novara Live. And it shows that it, this is a purely a purely strategic position rather than a moral one, as I, as I mentioned then, to the point at which this position is so mainstream amongst our entire political and media class, though when there was a UN resolution calling for just a humanitarian pause in the conflict, right? The US vetoed it, and only the only people who abstained rather than voting for it were Russia and the United Kingdom. 
So whilst Russia, the ones committing war crimes in Ukraine, are people to abstain on this humanitarian pause, the only other countries with the UK and the US, which is quite frankly an international embarrassment as far as uh, our country is concerned, that they can only get pushed into that position by this continual, this continual mainstream opinion amongst the entire political media class, which Keir Starmer shares, that is not shared by the wider population. Uh, one last point that I would make on this one, obviously, is there's this potential electoral backlash, which will see plenty of people moving to other parties. I mean, I think that if, say, for example, Aspire ran a candidate in Bethnal Green and Stephanie, which is a Tower Hamlet seat, I think given the demographics in that area, there'd be a very good chance that there might be a potential revolt there. But most of the councillors who've vacated the Labour Party in response to this, they've all moved into kind of an independent area. My question really would be, if they are looking to maintain their position as a councillor, where would they potentially move to if they did join another party once this all kind of subsides? Because as from what I've seen, the only mainstream political party in England, to put the SNP to one side, that's put out a statement explicitly calling for a ceasefire, explicitly calling for an end to the occupation, and, and to try and let the get the hostages negotiated their release, has been the Green Party. So I, I've, I wonder if any of these independent councillors might move in that direction at some point in the future. Let's go to our next story. The range of views expressed in the British media about the Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians and Israel's bombardment of Gaza are pretty limited. The attacks were terrorism, and the bombardment by Israel is self-defence. But BBC Question Time has been held in Northern Ireland this week. That's a region with a very different history when it comes to occupation. And that meant one woman in the audience gave a view of events that we're not used to hearing on the BBC. First of all, the ANC was a terrorist organisation and Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. And then you can say Yasser Arafat and the PLO, they were terrorists. And Mr Heaton Harris, this didn't start on the 7th of October. Do the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? Because the speak is, Israel has a right to defend itself. Did Palestine have a right to defend itself when land was taken from it, when people were dispossessed, when houses were levelled, when UN resolutions on torture, on ethnic cleansing, on apartheid, did the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? Did they have a right to defend themselves when Israel turn on and turn off the electricity and stop food and stop medical aid long, long before this attack? Well, because, let's, let's let him and answer, shall Just we? one more thing, right? There are 600 Palestinian children buried under the rubble at this moment in time. There are over 500 Palestinian children dead. And there are 500 Palestinian children in jail, 150 of them minors. Hostages, hostages. The children under the rubble are hostages. The children in the jails are hostages. There are hostages on both sides here. I think the most important thing she said there is this did not begin on the 7th of October, right? Because the thing that the mainstream media and the thing that, you know, the supporters of Israel really want us to think is that this came from nowhere. You know, there's this difficult conflict and then out of nowhere, one side committed this heinous act and now Israel has to respond. And what that ignores is the fact that why this atrocity ever happened in the first place is because Israel has occupied a people um, either since 1948 or 1976, depending on your 1967, sorry, depending on your interpretation of the Israel-Palestine conflict. That's the background there. And then you have isolated the Palestinian Authority, you know, ruled out any option of a sort of peaceful resolution of a two-state solution by continuing to expand settlements completely against international law. So the reason the Palestinian people have, you know, no hope at the moment, and the reason why Hamas are very popular, right, <laughs> is because the Israelis completely undermine the Palestinian Authority 
the Israelis made it impossible to have any kind of solution, right? So the Palestinian people are desperate, and they're desperate because of Israeli actions. And, uh, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. Um, but obviously, the Israelis want you to think this just came out of nowhere. That's, by the way, also why they want everyone to call Hamas terrorists, because we have this frame of reference for terrorism, which is that it sort of comes out of nowhere, um, whereas this is a long-standing conflict where actually one side have committed more, more war crimes than the other. Um, because the settlements, by the way, are against international law and they've been doing them consistently, expanding, 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 when everyone in the world recognizes that when you occupy a land, so you know, it's not, it's, as I said, there's disputes about whether the whole of Israel is, or the whole of Israel-Palestine is occupied territory because people who are in favor of a two-state solution think that Israel proper is Israel and then they're occupying um, the West Bank and, and Gaza. Now, everyone recognizes they're occupied bank though, and it's one of the fundamental principles of international law, that if you're occupying a place, well, one, you shouldn't do it for 56 years, and two, um, you are absolutely, absolutely banned from introducing settlements there because that is, you know, that's annexation, that's just taking over someone else's land. Absolutely against international law. Israel have been doing it for decades. They've been breaking international law for decades, but we're supposed to forget about that and just say, oh, this, this act of terrorism came from nowhere. Another member of the audience took a different view. On the panel was Sinn Féin's John Finucane, who had this accusation levelled at him. It came as no surprise to me whatsoever there that John Finucane uh, deliberately dodged your question. Um, he clearly supports a terrorist organisation in Hamas. <laughs> him and the rest of his cronies in, in the Sinn Féin are in bed with another terrorist organisation, be it the IRA, the well, two similarities. Well, listen, I must let, that's a very serious allegation, well, and I must let John Everybody over that. here knows it. Sadly, through the week, uh, Hamas bombed uh, a hospital. Another similarity that the IRA did exactly the same thing. Hang, hang on, are you talking about the Al Ahly hospital? Mm -hmm. it, it is not clear who, okay. who well, targeted that hospital. There's a high possibility that, that is true. The same things that IRA did here a number of years ago uh, bombed the Matter Hospital, the military wing, and killed two people. A disgrace. And that's the type of All right. terrorist organisation how many's party are supporting. John, of course, I must let you answer that. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's completely untrue. And, and I think it's what, what we're seeing is an opportunity to take the suffering of thousands and thousands of people in the Middle East to make what I would describe as a fairly cheap political point in, in what is a very serious uh, conversation. You've made an accusation against me, and that's fine. You have a view, and I'm not going to patronise you to change it. Um, but I'm somebody who grew up during a conflict. I'm somebody who had the conflict visited upon me mm. very personally uh, as a result of the murder of my father. The very first time that I voted in my life, I've said this before, was for the Good Friday Agreement. And I'm very grateful that I was given that opportunity by people on all sides who recognised the potential of dialogue, who recognised and created the conditions for peace that ultimately led to the Good Friday Agreement that I was very proud to vote for uh, the very first time that I voted. So I've benefited from peace. I've benefited from people who have not went out of their way to poke political opponents in their eye. And I'm reminded of the words of Martin McGuinness, who said that you don't make peace with your friends. Uh, and peace processes, by their very nature and definition, are difficult. They cause a lot of upset and difficult decisions to be made. But they are necessary for those who are serious about peace. So to clarify what I said in my earlier answer is that there will be very difficult decisions that require to be taken by all sides in the Middle East at the minute. All sides who have both inflicted and suffered hurt. 
but it's not good enough. And I've, I've, I've sort of heard a little bit of mixed messages from some of the answers so far tonight that one, there's an absence of leadership in the Western world, but two, Israel has a right to defend itself. The way Israel is interpreting that, what is it? Because I think if we are to see leadership in the Western world, we are going to have to see the conditions for every armed group that is on the ground over there at the minute to be convinced and brought to the place where an immediate ceasefire is put in place, where all hostages are given back without a single second of delay and the conditions are created where they can possibly aspire to what we have benefited from here. That was a really interesting answer. I mean, I, I think we should be careful because at this point in time, you know, the situation in Israel-Palestine looks so different to the situation in, in Northern Ireland when there was uh, when the Good Friday Agreement came to to pass. And for one, facts on the ground have sort of been made have made it very difficult for there to be a two-state solution. But I think the point raised there by the MP, by someone with experience of conflict, is to say, you know, what the UK government is doing at the moment is precisely the opposite if you want any kind of remotely just peace. Right, because if you've got two groups of people who are competing, who sort of have these, you know, their maximalist demands are completely incompatible with each other. You've got two outcomes by which the conflict ends. So one of them is one side achieves total domination and total victory. Now that's what the Israelis want. Now, unfortunately, that would involve genocide and it would involve ethnic cleansing, right? So that's why that's unacceptable. The other thing it could involve is both sides having a similar amount of power a similar amount of things to gain and lose, and then uh, enough bargaining chips at the table to to come to some compromise which is mutually agreeable. That's what happened in Northern Ireland, right? So you had um, the the Unionists and the Republicans who, it came to a point where they both had, you know, similar cards in their hands, and then they could come to the table and come to an agreement which was, you know, it was neither's ideal position, but it worked for both of them. If that's what you wanted in Israel-Palestine, if you wanted something that looked like the Northern Ireland peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. What you should be doing with, with all the power you have is trying to increase the power of the Palestinians so that Israel has to make some compromises. Because at the moment, Israel has all the power and so they're not willing to make any compromises. This is what happened in the Oslo Agreement, by the way, the Oslo Accords, the last time there was a peace process. They they managed to come to some kind of starting point agreement, um, but it was completely undermined because Israel kept expanding its settlements. The reason it kept expanding its settlements is because it could, right? It chose land over peace. The problem was that the Palestinians didn't have enough power to enforce a compromise which would be mutually acceptable. So our government is doing precisely the opposite thing if what you want is peace. Unless you want peace via genocide, right? One way to end a conflict is to destroy one side. But if that's what you want, if that's your vision of peace, you are endorsing ethnic cleansing and you are endorsing genocide. So I hope that's not what our government is hoping for. And I think that should be the question put to our government. You know, you arming Israel, you increasing the power of Israel, there's either two options that you're in favor of. Is it endless conflict, endless conflict because the Israelis are never going to be forced to compromise if that's what you keep doing, or is it genocide because it's one or the other? There is no way that you can be funding Israel who already have all the power and hope that that is going to lead to some kind of just peace, relatively just peace. Now, often peace accords involve some compromise as they did in Northern Ireland. But there is no reason for the Israelis to compromise at the moment because everyone is funding them. They have all the cards. Um, Helena, what did you think of that um, interaction there? It's very interesting that Question Time this week was in Northern Ireland, I think. 
It was indeed, yeah, it was some, some interesting context given given the history of the area. Now, so add further context as well. What the audience member was responding to is John Finucane's answer to the question asked to him by Fiona Bruce about whether he agreed with Israel's desire to get rid of Hamas. And he gave a really prevaricating answer that didn't really answer the question. And if you're in the position where you're a Sinn Féin representative, given their history, and you're not having a very specific answer to a question like this, that's very optically poor for you. And I'm really glad that he made a really good response to the actual audience member when he was brought up on this kind of stuff. Because you're absolutely right. This is all the result of material conditions. There's a moment from the debate between Piers Morgan and Hassan Piker last night, where Hassan specifically says there's this view amongst kind of liberals, the kind of um, idealists in philosophical terms, who believe that obviously in the idealist and materialism, there's two different idea competing ideas here rather than material conditions that would lead us to these positions in the first place, that lead to this kind of conflict. Think, and, he's, and Hassan made the point that these people think that people are just do bad things because they're bad people and it springs up out of nowhere. As you mentioned before, it's the material conditions, it's the material the, the, the material dialectic between Israel and Palestine that's led to the, the, to, the, uh, to the conflict, it's led to this disparity that will only continue this conflict unless those material conditions are alleviated. And so you could, every single Hamas member could be removed, every single member of the Al-Qassam brigades can end up being um going to be killed by Israel. And if all of the buildings in Gaza could be flattened, or in Gaza City could be flattened as they moved out of the north now, for example. And I think it was Aaron, Aaron Bastani, was debating with Peter Hitchens on GB News last week. And he made this statement, every building flattened by Israel in Gaza is yet another Hamas recruit. It may not be by the name Hamas. It may not be the name of Palestine, Islam, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, for example, or all of the other um, prescribed groups that are in that area, it will just be another group that responds to the continual worsening of those material conditions. And you're right. You're right. Israel has all the cards. There's no reason for them to want to compromise in this position when they have the backing of the West, when they are, again, the most powerful military in the Middle East, and they get to act with continually impunity on, on every, it's in every regard, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. And it's telling. The kind of people who are in government now in Israel, people like Netanyahu, people like Likud, people like the other far-right groups that he get, essentially get to push him around in the Knesset because they know that they can collapse the government anytime if they want to. So they're pushing him to be as as draconian, as aggressive as possible on settlement and on this desire. The foreign minister specifically that they specifically said that they have the desire to annex um, parts of the Gaza. It has to be smaller after the end of this conflict. And unless and these kind of people who are in power now were the kind of people who led to the ideology of the man who assassinated Yitzhak Rabin when he tried to have an actual material lasting peace. And so unless these ideologies that lead to these material conditions on either side of this conflict, as John Finucane said, are ameliorated and we actually come together to try and form a lasting peace like we did with the Good Friday Agreement, because I'm sure there are plenty of people during the troubles who said, this is unresolvable. Both sides are too militaristic for there to ever to be a peace process. And here we are, 25 year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and that has stood the test of time up until this point. So I think that there is room for compromise. There is room for these things to be solved diplomatically, but there has to be an agreement from the side with the power that they have to relinquish some of that to try and bring apart a lasting peace. And that's going to be difficult, but it is possible. And I think it has to be forced from the outside, right? Because if you've got all the power, um, then you're not going to compromise. I mean, you, your voters aren't going to vote for compromise if you've got all the power because, you know, frankly, Israel don't need to compromise. They have the strongest military in the Middle East. They, uh, you know, they, they, they can, this, the status quo for them 
obviously, you know, they've had a tragedy over the past couple of weeks. But I mean, with some better intelligence, they can probably stop happening that again, that happening again, sorry. And the whole point of Netanyahu was to say this, this status quo can continue, actually. We don't need to resolve this problem because we've got all the power and no one seems to be wanting to take any of it away from us. Um, hopefully that will change. Let's go to our final story of the day. It's no secret that US foreign policy displays a bias towards Israel, but that rarely gets openly confirmed. For 11 years, Josh Paul was a senior official in the US State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs. He's now resigned over what he calls the Biden administration's, quote, blind support for one side. In a PBS interview, Paul gave his reasons for quitting. We're talking about the transfer of arms that can last for decades, whose purpose is to kill. That's an obvious point, um, but it underlines the gravity of the decisions that we make every single day uh, in the US government and the State Department. Um, Recognizing that, the Biden administration earlier this year issued a conventional arms transfer policy which raised the standard for the transfer of weapons to what they call a more likely than not. If it is more likely than not that weapons the US provides to another country will be used for violations of human rights, uh, they will not be transferred. Um, what we've seen with Israel repeatedly in operations in Gaza in 2009, in 2014, 2021, is massive civilian casualties, thousands of Palestinians killed uh, through a, a relatively indiscriminate use of bombs to destroy buildings. Um, and yet, in this context of this conflict today, uh, where we've already seen, again, thousands of Palestinian casualties, uh, there has been no policy debate. Indeed, there's been a rush to provide arms uh, where normally there is discussion, consideration, and thought. So the Israeli Defense Forces, I should say, say that they only target Hamas officials, Hamas weapons, uh, and, and rocket launch sites. Uh, it sounds like what you said at the end there is one of your key criticisms. Did you raise your concerns within state, and what was the response? Uh, I raised them, in fact, uh, as soon as two days after the uh, Hamas atrocity. And let me just be clear, uh, that was an atrocity and an outrage uh, full stop, period, no further uh, caveats. Um, shortly after that, I raised concerns that, look, we've seen that for 20 years, um, the provision of security assistance to Israel, and for longer than that, has not led to peace. And instead, uh, it has used, uh, the way it has employed that security uh, is actually led us further from peace. And so I uh, wrote to uh, a number of leaders within uh, the department uh, two days after Hamas's attack and said, uh, you know, I recognize that there's going to be a, a demand signal for arms to Israel. Can't we for once stop and think about if this is actually getting us to where we need to be before we move forward? And what was the response? Uh, no response. No response. Now, I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. The thing that sort of initially stood out to me and somewhat confused, he said they've raised their standards and their new standards are if it's more likely than not that a weapon will be used to sort of to do a war crime or to um, do, you know, humanitarian atrocities, then we won't sell it to them. But that's that's already a very, very weak standard. If it's more likely than not that it will be used to commit war crimes, then we won't send it to them. So what was it before? 50-50? If it's only 50-50 that they're going to commit war crimes, yeah, we might as well sell it to them then. Right? It's The threshold is now, it has to be, you know, it, 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 there's a greater than 50% chance that it won't be used to commit humanitarian atrocities. What a What a moral superpower we are looking at. Of course, he's saying even by those very weak standards, um, the United States isn't upholding them when it comes to selling arms to Israel, because it is in fact more likely than not that Israel will use those weapons to commit war crimes, because we see them repeatedly over and over and over again doing it. They're currently um, collectively punishing the Gazan people for the attacks of the 7th of October. That's a war crime. 
right? They're currently indiscriminately, I mean, it seems like it, if you're looking at the number of um, entire families that have been killed, indiscriminately bombing Gaza, which is, again, a war crime. So this guy is saying, this guy who's working in the State Department, it's very clear that by our own very weak standards, we should not be transferring arms to Israel, yet we still are. And when I raise that this is a problem, people completely ignore me. I don't get a response. Um, let's hear what Josh Paul said next. And how unusual is that? It's extremely unusual. Uh, you know, if you think about other countries in the region, I, I, I won't name names, but there are obviously a number where there are troubling human rights records. And the debate over arms sales requests that come from those countries can last within the administration itself for months, sometimes even years. During your time, though, uh, the United States, for example, uh, I will name names, <laughs> provided <laughs> arms to Egypt, mm -hmm. widely criticized yep. for its human rights abuses, and to the Saudi coalition yes. that has killed uh, many, many civilians in Yemen and accused of violating the laws of war yes. by Human Rights Watch. Why do you not resign after those arms transfers? Because those were cases where I could make a difference and manage through my work and the work of many others in the department uh, to add some uh, elements to it. So, for example, uh, there is a training program that has been going on uh, now with Saudi pilots to improve their targeting. Um, and, and in the case of Egypt, of course, we have, you know, Leahy vetting where units that are identified to be involved in gross violation of human rights are not eligible to receive U.S. weapons. There is a Leahy vetting process for Israel. It has never found an Israeli unit to be guilty of a gross violation of human rights. It's a broken system. It's a broken system, right? That's incredible, right? We've seen what the Israeli army does when it goes to war in Gaza. We've seen that what it does is clearly um, what they do involve a lot of war crimes. They bomb hospitals, for example. Now, it's going to be very difficult to justify that. Yet, um, the vetting process that they have done of the Israeli army has never found anyone to have done anything wrong. You know, it's, it's always been completely above board. Now, if you're looking at Israel go to war, you know, I've done it a number of times this century, um, and you're looking at the results of those wars, to find that no rules have been broken. It's all been fine, all been cushy, all been above board. That suggests to me that those investigations are a farce, frankly, not just faulty, a farce. And let's go back to that interview. Isn't that proof that the vetting that State Department does do, you say, of the Israel's defense forces have not found a violation of Leahy? Does that mean that they don't violate Well, they've, they've identified many, but they have not been able to come to a conclusion which requires senior level sign-off within the department. Just to be clear, are you, are you saying that there have been units inside Israel's defense force that the State Department has been concerned about yes. their violations or their actions? You've brought that to senior officials and over the years consistently they have not acted on that. That is correct. Uh, these questions, of course, were put to Matt Miller, the State Department spokesman, uh, earlier today. Let's take a listen to what he said. We comply with all applicable uh, statutory requirements and regulatory requirements in our provision of military assistance to Israel as we do to every other country in the world. Isn't that what the U.S. pushes and isn't that the policy? I think that is right. We have complied with the laws. The problem is that the laws are intentionally vague in some cases. So, for example, uh, they require a determination that something has happened uh, in terms of gross violation of human rights before um, uh, sanctions, as they were, could be applied. So, yes, absolutely, we are acting within the law. Um, the question is, is that good enough? And we are certainly not acting within the conventional arms transfer policy. Now, that was a really strong allegation, because essentially what he's saying there is that the, you know, the civil servants in the State Department, they are finding that there have breaches of their policy among units of the Israeli army. But every time they come to that conclusion, it gets blocked from the political appointees above. 
So that suggests it's not a it's not a legal question here. It's not that sort of their lawyers are looking at this and saying, oh no, it has all been above board. It suggests that the civil servants, the lawyers, the people who are sort of you know have a have a slightly more objective view of the policy than the politicians, they are finding that there are lots of breaches. And when it gets sent up to the politicians, to the policy people, right, it gets blocked. Very, very, very concerning. Although I have to say, not remotely surprising. Now, that interview comes in the context of President Joe Biden reportedly asking Congress for an extra $14 billion to fund Israel's war on Gaza. In a primetime address to the U.S. nation, he explained why. In Israel, we must make sure that they have what they need to protect their people today and always. The security package I'm sending to Congress and asking Congress to do is an unprecedented commitment to Israel's security that will sharpen Israel's qualitative military edge, which we've committed to, the qualitative military edge. We're going to make sure Iron Dome continues to guard the skies over Israel. We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. Look, at the same time, President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can. And the people of Gaza urgently need food, water, and medicine. Yesterday, in discussions with the leaders of Israel and Egypt, I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. If Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment, these shipments, we're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. As I said in Israel, as hard as it is, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. As we keep saying on this show, if, if what you want is a two-state solution, the answer isn't to arm to the teeth the side with all the power. The reason we haven't had a two-state solution is because Israel has all the power. It has all the power because the Americans only send weapons to one side, right? So you're saying, we must not give up on peace, so we'll send unprecedented military funding to a state that's killed more than 4,000 Palestinians in less than two weeks. There is no possible way in which the route to a two-state solution is by sending Israel even more arms, so their power is even more overwhelming vis-a-vis the people they would need to negotiate with if there were to be a two-state solution. It's, complete, it's, it's, it's a lie, frankly, to say he is both sending Israel more weapons and he's in favor of a two-state solution. There is no way that those two things can be made compatible. Um, Helena, what do you make of, um, I suppose, the comments from the State Department official who's just resigned and then also um, that address to the nation from Joe Biden beyond, you know, I, I personally want to blow my own trumpet, but I could teach him a few lessons about reading from an auto cue. I mean... The thing is, is they obviously have continually funded Israel for a very, very long time and continually to do so. I think we'll all remember those pictures of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, crying in the House chamber, having been forced to change her vote from present or from no to present on the Iron Dome funding bill. I believe that was in 2021, right? So there's always pressure within the Democratic Party from those above them to be able to, and obviously in the Republican Party, that, that should go with that as a given, quite frankly, for pushing them towards continually funneling loads and loads of American taxpayer dollars into the pockets of Israel to, to, again, as you say, to push us further and further away from an actual solution by giving them the weapons that they are now currently using to do the things that are that we know to be against international law. But 
unfortunately, the, the State Department are not getting those claims ratified by the people above them to get the actual funding at least put under any sort of review on this one. And the reason for this, obviously, as we all know, is because Israel explicitly serves America's geopolitical interests in the region. And this is a direct quote from Joe Biden. Israel is the best $3 billion investment that we have. If there wasn't an Israel, then America would have to invent one. That's a direct quote from Joe Biden that he said about the how it is necessary for Israel to be continually funded by America to serve their own geopolitical interests. And he went further in a different interview to say that how many battleships, how many troops would there be in that area of the world were there not in Israel that was being continually backed by the United States? So it's very, very clear what their intentions are. And even if it thing do um, very kind of a frustration, frustrations like do what do Israel or do they not? actually contravene international law or not are things that are unconcerning to the political the political people with the power to be able to put these kind of funding under review, et cetera, et cetera. What I would caveat all of this with as well is that there is one thing that is getting in the way of Joe Biden being able to do this. And there is currently a deadlock in the House of Representatives since Kevin McCarthy was ousted as speaker. It's going to be very difficult for them to quickly pass this military aid package for Israel through Congress, when there is currently no speaker, there's currently no actual speaker that looks like they're getting in because Jim Jordan doesn't have the votes. They're only going to have the fourth vote to, later on today at some point, I believe. So there was the potential for this funding bill not even to pass Congress, which uh, would at least give some respite for the Palestinians for from the continual aid being shoveled into the pockets of their occupiers. Um, let's move on because there's evidence that sympathies across the Western world are shifting towards the Palestinians. In the developing world, of course, support for Palestine has always um, been strong. But we've seen massive protests against the bombing of Gaza across major cities in Europe and the US too. And one was particularly eye-catching. Earlier this week, hundreds of protesters converged on the Mall in Washington, D.C., demanding a ceasefire and a stop to what some are calling genocide. And it was organised by the Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not now an advocacy group, and a large number of the crowd were American Jews. And the protest was led by 25 rabbis, and around 400 of the demonstrators occupied the Cannon House office building in Congress, where testimonials from Palestinians in Gaza were read aloud. Around 300 of the protesters were arrested with free charged with assaulting an officer. I mean, it's very easy to get charged with assaulting an officer. I think it just means someone, you can put your hand on them, for example. They probably weren't violent protesters. Um, there are protests happening this Saturday too, of course, up and down the UK and all across the world. People will be marching on the streets, um, marching in solidarity with those trapped in Gaza. Now, a national demonstration will take place in London. I'll be there. Um, it will be setting off from Marble Arch at noon. Um, Helena, I do think that this is a situation, I mean, we, sh we sh you know, this isn't an optimistic end to the show because the situation is absolutely dire for the people of Gaza. Israel still does have, you know, nearly all the cards, right? It's, it's not that, oh, suddenly they're, they're going to meet their comeuppance, right? The situation is absolutely dire, absolutely depressing. But it does feel like bottom-up pressure is making a difference. You know, if you, if you think about the sort of the, the language that's coming from Western politicians now, it is, it, it has been tempered over the past two weeks. It's still not close to satisfactory, but it has been tempered. And I do think that is making some difference. I mean, do you share that assessment? I think I definitely I mentioned before already the overwhelming support there is for a ceasefire when the UK Poll on this issue. And of course, I think there has been a general level of support for the Palestinians, at least in recent years, uh, in the UK. I think there's a big difference as well in 
which part of the population that you're from too. But what's interesting, I actually saw polling that was released just yesterday. It was CBS polling that did this from America, which is the outpost of uh, Israel's support geopolitically as far as the world is concerned. And this was a very shocking poll numbers in that both Democrats and independents oppose in plurality, they oppose additional military aid to Israel. And 70% of all voters want to see aid given to Palestinians. This is unheard of. And even upon, even amongst Republicans, there's only 57% who supported additional aid, military aid to Israel as well. When you break down on the polling, I think this is true when it comes to the UK as well, um, the, it is usually older people who are supporting military aid and younger people who disagree with it. And I think this is a consequence of the change in the way that we engage with media, right? In terms of when older people, people 60 plus, etc., the, the largest group that does support this military aid. These were people who kind of grew up only only getting their news from official media outlets. People who are do just parrot the state department the state department's lines for for quite a while. So they would only have kind of a very one sided view of this conflict. Whereas the younger people who've grown up with social media, they've grown up with alternative sources or alternative, I guess not sorted, but narratives around the issue that's happening. Alternative perspectives have got a completely different viewpoint on what's happening in the region that they would have gotten if all of the information they'd had was from. Uh, mainstream media outlets on this issue. And you can see a, a stark difference between, in both the UK and the US, how young people and old people view this conflict. And young people are overwhelmingly pro-Palestinian on this particular geopolitical issue when they, if they polled and they are aware of the issue in general. So that is also something that we can take hope in and the, and the people who are going to be the main political cohort in the future are going to be the ones who do support Palestine. One last bit I would point out about that polling number for the Republicans, there being a, a, you know 47% who are against funding uh, additional um, military support for Israel, 43%, sorry, is that there's a big change in the foreign policy dynamic of America in general. The neocons don't have any power anymore. There is no neocon power in terms of the Republican base anymore. The Lindsey Graham types were getting mocked by the Babylon Bee of all places for their unconditional support for additional military aid for the state of Israel which just shows that this era of continual support for American intervention and Western interventionism, both here and across the pond, seems to be in rapid decline. And that should hopefully be a kind of mainstream position moving forward as cohorts age and the kind of people that are in the minority now do become the majority later. And that's something else that even in our, our political opponents, we've seen a sharp change on this as well, at least in the United States. So uh, something to, for us to keep hold of for the future. Helena, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I mean, your interventions have been great. Thank you. Much It's always great to be here. Thank you very much for the invite, as always. And thank you to everyone tuning in. Um, have a great weekend. Um, solidarity to everyone going out on Palestine marches over the weekend. I imagine that will be a lot of you. Um, of course, we'll be back on Monday from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.